Proverbs, we're going to look specifically at the family. So to the title for today's sermon is uh, La Familia es Muy Importante. Now, why is it that? Well, that sounds way cooler than the family is important. So La Familia es Muy Importante. The rest of the sermon will not be in Spanish. So, sorry. That would sound way cooler. Spanish is just a better language than English. Um, so, can we grab the lights real quick? It's uh, a little little dark. So, we, unfortunately, we don't have one central passage. I'm going to hit a lot of passages um, talking about it. So, let me pray, and then, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, I thank you <clears throat> for this morning. Thank you that you use us as broken vessels, as weak individuals. I pray, Jesus, that you will use this time. Let it be productive. Let our hearts be encouraged. Let us learn truth. Let us hear things that we know under, through the lens of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and let it change our hearts. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us, for saving us while we were your enemies. And I thank you for adopting us, Lord, making us part of your family. So I pray you would speak through me, help me to be um, one who desires to bring you glory, not myself. And I pray that our time would be productive. In your name, amen. So, um, by the way, I am fighting off a cold, so I didn't go through some middle-aged puberty where my voice dropped over the week. Um, so if I sound a little deeper than normal, this is my Valentine's Day voice I always use for Robin. Um, so, just kidding, just kidding. Um, and I may need a little more water than normal. So, when I say family, what do you think of? Who are the people that you picture in your mind when I say that? Now, if you are a grandparent, you probably immediately picture your grandchildren. And then several years later, your children, who happen to be the grandchildren's parents. Uh, if you're single... And older, you may picture siblings or nieces and nephews. If you're younger and single, maybe your mom and dad, uh, mom and stepdad, dad and stepmom, stepbrothers and sisters. Um, if you're newly married, you probably picture your spouse and then maybe mom and dad and siblings. If you're married with kids, then you probably picture your spouse and your kids. Um, so in our Western context, we tend to picture kind of our immediate family. So mom, dad, kids, siblings. Uh, in, in ancient times and in other parts of the world, still today, um, family was much more communal than that. So it was more about the tribe or the household that you were from. So maybe you're from the household of David or the tribe of Benjamin, or as I tell my girls, they're from the household of Hunter. So that's how they need to communicate that to the world. Um, and actually, in some parts of the world, like in South Africa, there's still a Zulu tribe. <laughs> And so if you're from the Zulu tribe, that can very much determine who you are and, and what your opportunities in life are. So in the, in the context of when this was written, when we look at Proverbs, we need to remember it wasn't talking just about the immediate family. It was certainly talking about the immediate family, but it was also talking about other relationships as well. Um, we're going to primarily look at the immediate family today. Um, so we're gonna. I want to first talk about why is family important in, at all? How do we know it's important from God's word? And then I want to look at some specific family relationships, kind of family in general, husband, wife, parent, child, siblings, and uh, grandparents. So, um, so b before we jump into some of those specifics, how do we know 
that family is important. And, and it is important because God's word tells us that. But even without that, experientially, you know it's important. Whether your experience has been good or bad, you know it's important. And I did a quick search, online search, um, about primary reasons why people go to counseling. And virtually every list included some kind of family trauma um, or family uh, emotional pain. So family is important and it has an impact on us. Uh, whether we want it to or not, you can decide that you're never going to see your dad again because the relationship is too painful, but that still has an impact on your heart. That decision not, not to see him will still impact your life because God's created us in certain ways. So um, the New Testament and the Old Testament do a good job of giving us a lot of metaphors about family and, and telling us how God compares our relationship to him through families. And so I want to look at a few of those um, Romans 18, or sorry, Romans 8, 15 through 17 says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this text says that we are adopted into God's family. We become his sons. We become his daughters. So we're literally brought into the family of God. Now, depending on your picture of God, that may not sound like a big deal. You may picture God as some big, far-off being who doesn't care about you. So what does it matter if he brings you into his family? Maybe he's just tolerating you, or maybe he has this huge house that he's just going to let you live in one part as long as you don't bother him. But that's not the picture that we're given here in this verse. It says that we call him Abba, Father. <coughs> now the term Abba translates most literally into our uh, English, into daddy. But even, but even that is not a, a sweet enough or an affectionate enough term. Um, and you don't usually use the term daddy unless there's some affection. So you may refer to somebody as your father <coughs> or even your biological father, but you usually don't call somebody your daddy unless there's affection, there's love, there's sweetness in the relationship. And all, all relationships that we experience, whether it's sibling, friends, husband, wife, parent, all relationships that we experience <coughs> are any sweetness that we get out of those or a direct connection back to God. Um, so Thomas Watson in his book, when he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, says this. All affections of parents <coughs> come from God, but yet they are but a spark from his flame. So just picture this massive fire and a spark. He is the father of mercies. So this reminds us that every good emotion and quality that we experience in a relationship, ultimately it's rooted in God. So if you've ever felt the nurturing tenderness of a mom or mother, that's a small taste. It's a drop of what we will get to experience when we are with God. So love, affection, forgiveness, grace, nurturing, all of these are attributes of God. And we experience them in life, but even though we experience them, we still experience them under the curse. They're not as sweet as they will be one day when we're with him. 
And there are other passages you can read. So if you want to read Ephesians 2.17, Galatians 6.10, or 1 Peter 4.10, all of these have this kind of um, father-child um, sweetness relationship to them. So there's this metaphor family that we see <laughs> in the New Testament. But we also see, um, we also see it through marriage. Marriage is another common example in the scripture. <coughs> and so, anybody having to have a cough drop, by the way? I did not have this problem in the first service. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, all right. Is there hall, so it should make my whole, my whole throat numb. <laughs> all right. <coughs> And I'll take a couple minutes. Uh, so family is another common metaphor that we see. And there's a few things, or marriage is another common metaphor we see for family. We see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So um, there's a lot that talks about Jesus being the groom and us as people being his bride. So there's an intimacy of us for all eternity being united with Christ. In Matthew 5, 6, or 19 verses 5 and 6 says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. <coughs> what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the marriage covenant is meant to last our entire lifetime. That's how God created it. And it doesn't always, we don't always see it happen that way, but that was the original intention. But our covenant, our enjoyment with God will last for all of eternity. So we are here now on earth and we get to experience God where we're going to experience him for all eternity. And unlike marriages, which are intent to be lifetime commitment, and sometimes they're not always that way, once we are sealed in his hand, it is permanent. We cannot be taken out of it. We are sealed in his hand and nothing can steal us away. We, he he is sovereign over everything that happens. So nothing can come in and take us away. So we're meant to see that family <coughs> is permanent just as our relationship with God is permanent. And we're also meant to see that family is meant to, in right circumstances, to be unconditional love. So God saved us and he married us and made us his bride because of his unconditional love. Not because of who we were, not because of what we earned or that we were beautiful, but because of his unconditional love and that for that alone. We were enemies of Christ. It was literally our sin that put him to death. And yet when he rose from the grave and conquered sin, the first thing he did was establish his church, his bride that he was going to marry. So he came to us when we were ugly and we were resisting and we were literally his enemies. And he married us, and he brought us into his family. So that is a beautiful picture of unconditional love, and that's what we're meant to see in families. And then the third thing with marriage that we're meant to see with families is that we will get to spend all of eternity enjoying each other. So life is, is here, and it has sweet moments, but there are also hard times, and there is still sin in our hearts. But there's going to come a day when we're going to be with God. We're going to be fully adopted as his sons and daughters, 
We're going to not be living under the curse any longer, and it's going to be the after party that's going to last for all of eternity. It's going to be this increasing joy and affection for him. So those are the metaphors that tell us through Scripture. God adopting us as his children, seeing bright, uniting with us as his bride, that tell us through marriage and family that we know family is important. Um, <clears throat> but family is permanent. <clears throat> as I mentioned before, you can estrange yourself from a, from a parent, from a dad or a mom. That still has an impact on you. You don't get to pick who your children are. You don't get to pick who your siblings are. You don't get to pick who your parents are. But God sovereignly creates each one and puts us together in his perfect plan. Now, permanence doesn't mean that it's easy. So having a difficult relationship and knowing that it's permanent doesn't always make it easier. In fact, it can make it harder. And you can have broken relationships. Um, in fact, the idea of Proverbs talks a lot about this idea of shalom. And I want to talk about shalom to set up before we go into some of these specific Proverbs. Now, the idea of shalom is, if you read through the Old Testament, it's this idea of peace. But again, the translation breaks down a little bit. So it's more than just peace. It's meant to be life as it should be, or life as it should be without sin. So it's, it's not, um, we live under the curse of sin, so we see things that are broken. It's not shalom that children are abandoned, or forced into slavery, or husbands are abusive to their wives, or that we even have to have something like the Me Too movement, where powerful men have taken advantage of women. That's broken peace, that's broken shalom. So it's meant to be life as God originally created it, his original purpose so it's not life as it should be in your opinion. So, you know, you may think that all the music on the radio should be from the 60s because that was the best music, in which case you would be wrong because you'd be leaving out the 90s, which was the greatest decade. But <clears throat> so this is not based on opinion of what you think. This is literally how God created things, life as it should be. And so um, we should not be living under a broken shalom. But we will be in eternal peace with God at some point. So one thing you have to keep in mind when you're reading Proverbs is they talk about a lot about how life should be. But because we're living under the curse of sin, it's not always that way. Sometimes you see things that shouldn't be as they are. So let me give you an example. Um, it's from Proverbs 10.4. So Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So what's this proverb saying? It's saying if you're lazy and you don't work, then in general you will not create wealth and grow it. If you work hard and are diligent and are wise, then you'll create wealth and grow it. Now, is this, in general, that's true. It's not true in every single circumstance. Let me give you an example. There are countries in the world where it is illegal to believe in and love Jesus. And there are Christians in those countries who are in prison for the only reason is that they believe and they love Jesus. Now, are those Christians lazy because they're not working and they're not creating and growing wealth? No, they are. God is sovereignly orchestrating his plan through their suffering. The Apostle Paul was often in prison for no other reason than he was preaching Jesus. He wasn't lazy. He labored hard in the gospel. So, again, because we have this broken shalom and we live under the curse... 
we see things that are not as they should be. If things were, if, if things were perfect, we would never have somebody who was put in prison only because they love Jesus and for no other reason. Because that's a glorious thing to do. That's a glorious, that's what we were actually created to do is to enjoy and have affections for God. So we're going to laser in on some of these Proverbs. And you might have counterexamples that pop in your mind. But keep that in mind. That's the reason is we're not living in a perfect shalom yet. So I want to talk about some, some relationships in general. So let's just start with kind of the family in general. So not any specific relationship. And it could be the root of many relationships that cause these problems. But Proverbs 17.1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And if you read the Proverbs, as you read through the Proverbs, there'll be certain Proverbs that will hit you and they will cut right to your inner soul. And you will feel that that proverb is true. You will know it's true because you have lived it. You have felt it. This is one of those proverbs for me. When I read it, I get, I get flooded with mental images from my childhood. So my parents had a, had a turbulent marriage, to put it mildly. And they, when they divorced when I was six, and the five years that followed after that, they both made a lot of terrible decisions that caused a lot of pain and grief. And there were many, many nights where our house was full of chaos and strife and fighting. And I remember the very first time I ever read this verse. I, it stopped me, and I thought, I know that is true. I, I have felt that. I have lived that. I know that it is better to barely have any food and have a, a quiet, tranquil soul and peace in your relationships than to have lots of food and, and not have any peace. And so the, the, you have to keep in mind, again, Solomon is writing this in a time when the world is very poor, most people are poor. If you are not in the ruling class, then basically you don't, you, you struggle to survive and get by. So feasting would not have been a regular thing for the people that are reading this. So the idea to say something radical, like it's better to, to have barely any food and be at peace and have shalom than it is to feast with a king and have lots of strife would have landed on them probably even harder than it lands on us. Now, feasting is not, we're not to see here that feasting is bad. Feasting is, is glorious. It's something that, we'll be, that we are told we will do in the new heavens and the new earth. We will feast with God. And I love food. I mean, I love to eat it. I love to smell it. I love to prepare it. I love to watch other people prepare it when I'm in their house or on the food network. I love to think about what I'm going to eat next week or later this month on vacation where we're going to eat. So it's not an issue of me not loving food, but... If there's enough chaos and enough strife and enough contention, I can lose my appetite. And that's what we're meant to see here is if relationships are broken and they're striving and there's not peace, even the basic things in life that are supposed to be sweet can break down and become bitter. Food is literally what gives our body energy to go. It's, we, it's, we have to have it. But even that experience of eating it can be soured by sin and broken relationships. So I want to move from there, and it, it can be a variety of things that can cause a house full of striving. It can be a rebellious child. It can be sibling rivalry. It can be overbearing fathers or, um, you know, or, or fretful, worrisome wives. It, it can be a combination of all of those things. But we're meant to see that if, we're, if our hearts are not in God's will, then um, the Bible talks a lot about just the pain and the sorrow that will come from that. So let's start with the husband-wife relationship. 
because this was the first family God created when he created Adam and Eve. He created them separate genders. He put them together and made the first family. So Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife or husband finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So again, God's the one who created marriage. He created, he created, when he put Adam and Eve together, he blessed it. Jesus affirmed marriage. The first recorded miracle that we have in the New Testament is the uh, turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. So God's created marriage. Jesus has blessed marriage. And God has set it up as the primary care unit for the future generation. So having kids and the previous generation. Because as we get older, our bodies begin to break down and we're not always able to care for ourselves. So this is how God begins families. And a marriage where we pursue God and his righteousness is a good thing. And it's meant to be a beautiful picture of peace and shalom, the way things ought to be. And if we go on, Proverbs 19.14 says, House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife or a wise wife or husband, is from the Lord. So we must remember that not only is God a creating God, but he's a blessing God. And when God created everything, when he created the earth, and vegetation, and animals, and then man and woman in his own image, he said that it was all good, and he blessed it. So not only does God create, and he's the only power that has, he's the only being that has that power to create, and he does it all the time, he creates things out of nothing, but he blesses them, and he says that they're good. And so um, we get to experience a lot of blessings from God. There, you know, there's shelter and a house and food and clothes, and all of those are material blessings. And we will have material blessings, again, in the new heavens and the new earth, but relational blessings are always his greatest blessing. The relationship of him adopting us as rebellious, dead sinners who deserve eternal wrath, Adopting us into his family, making us his sons and daughters, and giving us a relationship with him for all of eternity. That's the greatest blessing. But he doesn't stop there. He redeems, and he works in our hearts to redeem our relationships with each other, whether it's family or non-family. And so a prudent or a godly wife is a blessing from the Lord, and it makes the relationship life-giving, and it's a blessing to the other spouse. Unfortunately, we do live under the curse, and we don't always have peace or shalom in marriages. So we're going to look at a couple Proverbs from Proverbs chapter 21 that talk about contentious. So Proverbs 21.9 says, It's better to live on the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Now, before any husband is tempted to say, preach it, brother, you have to remember that this was written primarily to a male audience at that time. So most of the examples are with the counter gender. When we read it today, it's meant when you read woman, you can substitute, or wife, you can substitute husband. And there are certainly many husbands who are overbearing and make lives miserable for their wives. So again, before any wife says, preach it, brother. Let's look at the intention of what this is meant to say. It's not meant to name call and stand up and uh, tear the other person down. But it does highlight how unpleasant a marriage can be. So think about 
Um, if you think about a desert land, you're meant to get this image of barrenness. It's hard to find food. It's hard to grow food. It's hard to find water. It's hard to find shelter. It's, it, you may be, uh, hard, it may be hard to be safe from dangerous animals. So you get this idea of kind of really an unpleasant place to live. If you think about living on the corner of a house, now in those times the houses were flat, the roofs were flat, and people did sleep on the roof. But if you think about trying to live on the corner in a triangle and sleep there, that'd be, that, that would be unpleasant. But if you think about trying to prepare food and eat and get dressed and bathe and toilet and all that stuff on the corner of a house, that would be really hard to do and pretty embarrassing. But it's saying it'd be better to do that than to have to share a house with a quarrelsome spouse or fretful spouse. Now, the, the idea here is you have somebody who um, is never satisfied, is always looking for a fight, or at a minimum is always ready for a fight. So it, the, satisfied, the fretfulness could be worry, somebody who's kind of nagging or, or just never satisfied with where they are or what anybody has done for them. Or it could be somebody who has a lot of anger, somebody who's very um, aggressive or, or maybe passive-aggressive, always kind of making cutting, snide comments. And if you think about marriage, marriage is meant to be life-giving. It's, it's the most intimate relationships. You relate to your spouse through marriage in a way you don't relate to anybody else in any other relationship. Emotionally, certainly physically, there are ways that you relate, and it's meant to be the sweetest relationship that we have outside of our relationship with God. But unfortunately, the reciprocal is also true. It can be the most destructive and create the most wounds in your heart and in your soul of any marriage. And I was thinking about this, and as I was thinking about this, the image of a knife came to my mind. Um, and I was thinking about, you can use a knife in a lot of different ways. So if I have a kitchen knife and you're coming over to my house, I can use it to prepare a feast. So I, I like meat a lot. So I could use it to trim down a brisket that I'm going to smoke and serve to you. <laughs> I could use it to cut up potatoes that I'm going to roast. I could use it to cut bread and then spread butter on the bread. And we're getting close to lunch, so stay with me. Um, and so I could use it to serve you this beautiful meal that's a really a blessing to you and that we can both enjoy together. Or I can use it to stab you in the leg and roll you down the hill. So the knife is the same in either scenario. In one way, I'm using it in the way it's intended. I'm using it to create... And, and I'm using it for beauty and for something to be enjoyed. And the other way, I'm using it for destruction. Now, it's the same knife, but how I use it makes all the difference in the world as to whether you leave my house and with the intention of coming back or not. So <laughs> this is what marriage is meant to be, when, not to stab people. To, but it's meant to create beauty and glory and, and enjoyment in your life. And I want to issue a warning to anybody who's not married, because the New Testament talks a lot about being um, unequally yoked, being married to, a, to an unbeliever. And marriage is hard enough if you're both submitting to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can take away my selfishness and my self-centeredness and my self-righteousness and my pride and my anger and my disappointment and move me toward the character of God. The Holy Spirit's the only one that can make me loving and patient and compassionate and forgiving and selfless and, and wanting and desiring to serve. And if you come together with a spouse who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, 
it, it's going to be difficult. The Bible tells us that it will be. Marriage is hard enough. You don't need any extra challenges by being connected to somebody who's not submitting to the Holy Spirit. So let's talk, let's move and talk about parent and child relationships. And I, I read Proverbs 10 through 29 to get ready for this sermon. And as I was reading through those chapters, more Proverbs stood out to me about the parent-child relationship than any, any others. I didn't actually do a search. I don't know if there are more for that relationship than any other, but certainly the ones that caught my attention and I made note of, I had more than double for this than any other relationship. Because being a parent is hard, and being a kid is hard. If you can remember back, it's not always easy to be a kid. So I want to look at several Proverbs here. We're going to look at some that, um, that are, and they and they're both will address parents and children. So Proverbs 6.20 says, My son or daughter, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. And as I was reading this, um, the first thing that popped in my mind was the fifth commandment. So when God gave the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment in Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and mother as the Lord has commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So this is the first commandment of the ten that's outside of our relationship with God. The first four, love Love God, don't have any idols before God, respect God's name, don't take it in vain, and then keep the Sabbath holy. Five, honor your parents. This is the first one that's not in direct relationship to our relationship with God. And I think that's not accidental. If you think about the importance of the first four, the first two, the most important, Jesus says the whole law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. Um... So you get to the fifth one and you get parents. So God is communicating this is important for parents and for kids. Not just for little kids. Anybody who has parents, okay? So my parents, thankfully, are both still alive. So it's true for me. Um, so you hit this and we've shifted from God. The first human relationship he goes to is parents. And the instruction is to love and honor your father and mother. And there's a promise connected to it. So again, you have to think of this as like a proverb. We're living under under the curse, we don't have full shalom. So not every single person who honors their mother and father will it go well with them and they'll have a long life. But in general, this is true. And so this proverb is also Proverbs 6.20. It it's, begins what's called a section that's called the call to attention. And so there's this section through the rest of chapter 6 that is calling the readers of Proverbs to pay attention, listen up. What's being said here is really important. And so... As children, we are called to honor our parents. Now, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, or she should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, as children, as parents, we're called to train and discipline our children. They are born knowing nothing except how to sin. That comes pretty natural. But almost everything else has to be trained. So you spend a lot of time with them. You were there when they first giggle. I remember both of our girls. It was around three or four months. It was the first time that's where the brain development gets far enough where they can giggle. And it is so sweet. And you video it and you show it to other people. It's really boring to them, but it's fascinating to you. So you're there when they giggle. You're there when they roll over. You're there when they crawl, when they walk. You're there when they eat their first solid food. 
I still remember the very first thing we ever fed Katie Beth, solid food that wasn't baby food or formula, was avocado. It's just kind of quasi-solid food, but that was you got to start slow, and then they get to brisket later. So <laughs> you're there when they, when they eat their first solid food. You're, you help them with things like riding a bike. You're there when they come home from school or from a play date, and they got their feelings hurt by a friend for the first time. You're there with them as they hit the teenage years, as they begin to develop interest in the opposite sex. And eventually, you're there with them when they leave your house. And God has given you this time and this responsibility to help train them and to model for them. Now, there's, there's two things that we have to do. We have to be intentional. So when you come in and break up, break up a fight, we want to try to point them to the gospel. We want to remind them why they want to rebel, why they want to do things. It's because they need God and they need Jesus to forgive them. They need his grace. They need his abounding love. So we have to intentionally train them and point them to the gospel, but we also have to model for them. If we tell them that God is important, if we tell them pursuing God is important, but they never see us feasting on his word and reading it or communicating with him in prayer or fellowshipping with other believers or meditating on his word and memorizing it, if they never see us doing those things, then it may communicate to them that, Our faith is about a set of works and instead of a relationship. Or it may communicate to them that we're hypocrites and God is not that important. I had a client meeting recently with a client who was having to deal with her dad. He was older, he's in his 80s, and uh, she had to find a place because he couldn't be at home by himself anymore. She had to find a place for him to be safe. And um, so I asked her, uh, and and, um, he was married to not her mom, so there's a stepmom involved, and they don't have a great relationship, the daughter, the stepdaughter and stepmom. So I asked her, I said, um, was it hard to work with her um, to kind of be the main coordinator of where her care was going to be? And she said, actually, it wasn't that hard uh, because I found out they're not actually married. And I said, what? You, you, I thought you said this to your stepmom. She said, I thought they were married. She said, turns out that because of insurance and Social Security benefit reasons, they, it was more financially benefit, beneficial for them to not get married. And she said, um, my dad was a pastor, and he told me all my life how important marriage was. But I guess when it comes to money, if the money's not right, it's not that important. And so it was completely, he had said one thing to her, and she, she's in her 50s, he's in her 80s, and she just found this out in the last few months. Completely said one thing to her, but then had modeled something different. And that spoke volumes to her. I could hear hear the the hurt and and the hypocrisy and the betrayal in her voice. So we have to be intentional and we have to speak to them and we have to point them to Jesus, but it has to be real in our hearts or they'll sense it. They'll sense it. All right, let's talk about siblings. So every parent in every society knows that siblings fight. I didn't research this, but I'm pretty seconds it would take about a Pretty sure it take about 30 seconds of an experiment to prove. So siblings, they're, it, from the beginning, it's been a problem. The very first family, Adam and Eve, they're created. They have two little boys, Cain and Abel. Things are going good. But then Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of him. Then we're not even that deep in, in Genesis. You get Jacob and Esau, betrayal, deception. Jacob tricks his brother, takes his place, takes his inheritance. 
Then you get to Joseph and his brothers. We're not even out of the first book of the Bible. And you have rivalry. His brothers sell him into slavery and lie to his dad and say he's been killed. So jealousy, betrayal, rivalry, all of these things are broken shalom, a broken peace, broken living under the curse. So Proverbs has a lot to say about siblings. We're going to look at a couple of verses. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A brother, a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. Now, I think we could be tempted to read this the wrong way. So you may be tempted to read a friend. Friends are always there for you. They never do anything wrong. You have to keep in mind what Proverbs means by friend. What Proverbs means by friend is not what we always mean by friend. There are fair weather friends. There are friends that will abandon you when things get hard. There are friends that are only there because of what they can get from you. Proverbs spends a lot of time talking about wisdom and about folly. The wise man and the fool. So when it says a friend here, there's this implicit assumption that we're talking about a wise, prudent, loyal friend. Okay, and when it says a brother is born for adversity, I don't think it could mean they're born to make your life miserable. I know that's how a lot of people feel about their siblings. But like a better rendering of it is when life gets hard, when life gets tough, your family should be there for you. Your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad. So the, what we're meant to see here, I don't think this one is necessarily trying to highlight one is more important than the other. Friend's more important than brother. Brother is more important than friend. But it's certainly meant to communicate that family is important and that we should be able to count on them and they should be able to count on us. And Paul even alludes to this in um, 1 Timothy 5. So if you read 1 Timothy 5, he's giving instructions about how to care for the church. And he gives these instructions about widows. And he says that if a widow has children or grandchildren that can care for her, let them care so the church doesn't have, so she's not a burden on the church. Let the church care for the widows who don't have any family to care for them. So he's highlighting this idea of family is born, God sovereignly puts us together to be able to love and care for each other. That's why he naturally gives parents a desire to care for their children. Now again, it's broken. You see parents who tear their kids apart and are abusive. But in general, most parents love and want what's best for their kids. And family relationships, especially as we become older, because I fought, my my brother and sister and I, we fought, But as we've gotten older, those relationships have gotten sweeter. And I look back now, and I think think that the things that we did and the things that we fought about were foolish. And I tell my girls all the time, God sovereignly gave you to each other. He put you together. And and you've got to learn how to love and care for each other. Because your mom and I are not going to always be around. And so you can either tear each other apart and hurt each other, or you can love each other and build each other up and be each other's biggest source of encouragement. And our flesh wants to rebel. Our flesh wants to, wants, to, wants to hurt, wants to get all the glory for itself. But God has given us those relationships as a gift. And we should be able to count on them. But unfortunately, it doesn't always go that way. Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Now, I'm not a person who's moved much by poetry. I don't spend a lot of time reading poetry outside of the poetry I had to read when I was in school, and even that didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I'm not saying it's not valuable. There are things in my life that people think are, you know, a waste of time. But this is one word image that really landed on me when I read it. And it's a beautiful, poetic way of of illustrating how relationships can go wrong. 
So if you think about a strong city, in that day and time, cities were surrounded by walls and they had gates. So the idea is, to, is this um, city that is, you know, it's locked up tight, cha-ching. It's, it's, nobody's getting in. And not only that, there's a strong army inside the city ready to defend. So the, the, the relationship has moved from one of even trying to love each other, even trying to build each other up, to one of defensiveness, and if there's, an, if there's an argument, wanting to win. And if you go on and it says quarreling is like the bars of a castle. Why do you put bars on a castle? It's to keep people out. And so we're meant to see this idea of defensiveness where any concern, any sweetness, any love of the relationship is gone. It's only at this point about not getting hurt, being defensive and offensive to the other person, and if there's any contention, trying to win. And that, that's not, that's a broken peace. That's broken shalom. That's not why we were created. But we see it. If you read much in literature, whether it's Shakespeare or um, modern day stuff, there's all kinds of stories that talk about broken family relationships and bro- broken sibling relationships. When Robin was in law school, they, 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 you spend a lot of time studying cases. That's how you learn the law. And many of the cases she studied, in fact, most of the cases she studied were about family and friends. And many of the cases she studied were about family. It wasn't strangers turning on each other. It was family members turning on each other over a business deal that had gone bad or the death of a relative and fighting over money and an inheritance. And so just as a marriage relationship is meant to be the sweetest and can be the, the most hurtful, family relationships are meant to be sweet and life-giving. But if we are not pursuing God and submitting to him and enjoying him, we're not going to act toward those people the way that we should. So I want to end by talking about um, grandparents. Proverbs 17.6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Now the words glory and crown are connected here. And they're often in the Old Testament used interchangeably. So we're meant to see this idea of like a, somebody wearing a crown, this glory and this majesty. And so grandparents um, do glory in their grandchildren. If you have ever met a proud grandparent, you probably watched some videos you didn't care about seeing, seen too many pictures of their grandchildren that you're not interested in. If you're driving around, I often see personalized license plates. More about grandparents than anything else. Mimi times three. Grandma love. Whatever. It's all over Raleigh, I feel like. I experienced this in my own life. When we go visit my mom, my kids run in. My mom is so excited. She hugs them, kisses them, tells them she's missed them so much. It's so good to see them. About five minutes after I've drug all the bags in, I'll tell her hi. And she'll say, oh, I'm, hi, honey. I'm glad you're here too. And then she will bolt off to show the girls what she has bought them for no other reason than they have a pulse and they're alive. (laughs) Grandparents are very proud of their grandchildren. In fact, Robin and I have a joke. I've met so, I've never, every grandparent I have ever met, their grandchildren are advanced. Somehow, not all adults are advanced, but all grandchildren are advanced. Whether they're advanced in crawling, reading, riding their bike, Every grandchild is advanced. Something happens through puberty and we don't all get to be advanced adults. But, um, so grandparents 
what we're meant to see in the Proverbs is this idea of shalom. So it, it, in, in, um, especially we should honor those that are older. And those we've lost that a little bit in our culture. In older times, um, not everybody made it. Not as many people made it to be elderly because there was a lot of infant mortality. A lot of women died in childbirth. There were a lot of diseases that if you just got them, that was it. You were done. So there were less and less. In that time, you didn't see as many people that were older. So it's meant to communicate this idea of blessing from God, longevity or shalom or peace. But grandparents also, you have a unique place in life in that usually the stresses and the pressure of parenting little kids is not the same as adult children. And, the, and, and grandparenting younger kids, you don't have the same stresses and pressure. So you're able to see things more uniquely. And you have a lot of life experience that your kids and your grandkids haven't lived through. And hopefully that, that has, God has used that create, to create wisdom and prudence inside of you. So your job as a grandparent is not solely to give your grandkids candy. It is more, it's, it's more complex than that. Use your position to speak into their lives, into your kids' and your grandkids' lives. Use your experience. Use the things that God has told you to encourage them to build them up, because he's put you there for a purpose. And I hope to have grandkids one day, and I do hope to spoil them, but I hope that God will, will give me wisdom in how to help partner with the parents in training them and continue to love and encourage my kids. So I want to close by just reading a couple sentences um, that I wanted to get right. So finally, we can rest and have peace in our hearts that shalom will be restored and we will spend eternity in perfect relationship with God and each other. There's this idea in the scripture of increasing joy and perfection. We will not be able to exhaust God's glory. We'll get to enjoy it forever. And we can also be encouraged that through his grace and the gospel, we can experience shalom here on earth and even in our family relationships. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the time this morning. I thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. I thank you for being able to heal hearts. Jesus, I know that we have strains in family relationships. We have unbelieving family members. I pray for unbelieving family members. I pray for relationships that are strained, that are, that are bitter, that are maybe even isolated or estranged. I pray, Jesus, that you will redeem. You are a redeeming God. You are one who brings dead things back to life. I pray, Jesus, that you will heal those relationships. I pray for marriages, Lord. Satan would love nothing better than to tear apart all of the marriages in, in your church. I pray for protection over those, Lord. I pray that that we will use those marriages to build up, to bring life, to encourage. Jesus, parenting is hard. Being a kid and being parented is hard. I pray, Jesus, that our you have been faithful to bless with many little ones. And I pray, Jesus, that they will love you. Let them not be enticed by the desires of the world. Let them hunger for you, Lord. Let them see that freedom comes through enjoying God. Freedom comes through affection for you. 
that pain and hurt and death comes through running from you. And I do pray for siblings and grandparents. I pray, Jesus, that you will help us to be faithful. We are not adequate, Lord, but you have won the victory. Help us to remember what you've done for us as we go to communion. In your name, amen. We're going to take communion, which is a time to remember what God's done.